This week on the podcast, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts presents an evening of songs that have been cut from this season's new Broadway musicals, including The Bridges of Madison County, If Then, and Rocky. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org. Good evening. Welcome to Lincoln Center and welcome to the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. I'm thrilled you all made it here and made it into the auditorium. This is um, going to be a terrific program and I'm so happy that you are here with us. Um, I'm curious, just because we have such a great crowd, how many of you are visiting the New York Public Library for the, for the Performing Arts for the first time this evening? This evening? Well, welcome. Oh! <laughs> It's great to have you here. This is a really special place. Um, we have an amazing circulating collection that focuses only on the performing arts, so that means you're not going to find a Stephen King novel here or a romance novel here or a mystery novel here, but you can check out that amazing documentary about the prima donna that just inspires you so much or the biography of John Cage or even multiple copies of... Um, a play so you can put together some play reading dinner party or something like that. Um, this, we have all the essential resources for people in the performing arts to check out. We also have an incredible research collection that's uh, full of rare materials from the performing arts, things like John Cage's manuscripts. We have autographed manuscripts of Ludwig van Beethoven. We have all sorts of materials that showcase, showcase the artistic process, drafts of people's scripts. We have cut songs from Fiddler on the Roof, about a dozen of them up there that didn't make it into the show. And tonight's program is a lot like that, too. Um, we're actually able to showcase some of the material, showcase the artistic process, give you a sort of inside look on what's going on when a new musical <coughs> comes to New York and comes to Broadway. And we're really, really grateful that we can share with you some of the amazing creative people behind that, especially during this frenetic Tony season time. You all are so lucky if you would let me say that to you, because the folks that we have tonight are darting in and out from our event to another event to a cocktail party, because they're all involved in Tony season preparation. So that's pretty cool. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad they're here. Would you please help me welcome um, my colleague, who's a wonderful essential team member, Doug Reside. He's the digital curator here. He's going to be moderating. And two of our incredible um, guests, the beloved um, composer and lyricist duo, uh, Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens. Thank you. Um, so today, uh, as I think Evan said, we're talking about some of the songs that were cut from Broadway shows, and we want to just get right into it. Uh, right uh, backstage, I was talking to, to Lynn and Steve about a, a tradition that they have on opening night uh, that actually involves cut songs, and I wonder if yeah. you can... Well, every, every opening night that we've ever had, Stephen gives me a notebook of one form or another, 
and it contains every cut song from that particular show. Not only cut songs, but cut bits of underscore, transition music. Sometimes he puts drawings in between that says, this never left your living room, and this never left the first reading, and that type of thing. And they, they start out really big, and they sort of diminished over the years, but we, he just gave me one for opening night for Rocky, which is gorgeous and bound. It's really fancy. Oh yeah, this is de- by far the fanciest of the, really of the ones, yeah. It had gold We've on grown the up. Yeah, they get yeah exactly. Now. But, uh, so, sort of the fun thing of, about the book is, is it's not to mourn the songs that didn't make it to the stage. It's a, a weird way to celebrate them. And also, I think when you look at cut songs, uh, there's something that tells you about the evolution of the show, about how it came to be what it came to be. And also, it's about good parenting of shows, you know, because you can see some of these early songs that have no business being in the show or tonally aren't quite right. So it's, it's an interesting thing just to look at the evolution of the show and, you know, cut songs, that, you know, it's kind of a lonely, they're on their own. It's kind of nice that they can hang they out hang together. They hang out together <laughs> in my notebooks. Exactly. But, there, but there, it also shows the process of, of yeah. the thought. At, that went into the show and, and how you start out finding a tone and saying, or discarding that tone or finding something for a character that doesn't end up in, in the show. And, and they're very fascinating. So we had an event at the library here uh, about a month ago where Thomas Meehan uh, told us a little bit about the, the genesis of the show and how Sylvester Stallone had asked him uh, if he would be interested in working on Rocky, and he originally said no, and then asked you guys, and you said that you were originally not interested, and I wonder if you could pick up the story from there, and how you, <laughs> sure. you became interested in the show and the, the sort of trajectory of Rocky through Germany to Broadway. Yeah, well, in a nutshell, it's a big nutshell, but um, uh, Tom approached us with uh, an idea. We thought it was really not a good idea, um, and weren't too excited about it, and in fact, we're very scared about it. Um, and then we, my husband, who's sitting here somewhere, there he is, he said, just read the screenplay and look at the movie, because he thought it was a great idea, and he sort of convinced me to do it. It's, and, well, it, it's, it's funny, I think we both had the same reaction. We thought it seemed like kind of a yeah. goofy idea, or we couldn't see it first. And, and Lynn actually had a more violent reaction than I did. Her reaction was, her reaction is, I hate violence. I hate, I hate violence I on stage. Boxing. I hate boxing. Yeah. So why would I want to sort of celebrate that? And Tom was wise. He said, you know, you owe it to yourself. Just read the first screenplay. And I think also, because when you think of Rocky, you think of all the baggage. You know, like whenever he fought Mr. T and then that Russian guy. And, you know, I, I mean, it was like it just kept going on and on. And, you know, apparently still is. You know, So, so you, you know, I, I thought like, and, and Tom said, no, it's just the first screenplay. Read it, read it. And it was, there was something so beautiful about it. It reminded me of actually of like a Playhouse 90 script. You know, very gritty uh, very character-driven. Full actually, of beautiful language that inspires yeah. songs. That's what we look for often: is language, a dialogue that that sounds like poetry in a weird way. And and it had that. It had the language of boxing. It had the slang of South Philly. Um, and you know, these are very very tender-hearted characters. Very beautiful love story, uh, which I I suddenly remembered. You know, I, I remember having seen the movie originally and. And the whole theater leaped to its feet and screamed in a movie theater. And, you know, you never see that. And I had never done it before or since, really. And um, seeing the movie again reminded me of how emotionally invested you become in those characters and how simple and, and straightforward and yet how complex a plot it was. And I think that the language, the milieu, the, um, the emotional quality of the story finally convinced us to, yeah. you know, put a sign on our backs that said, kick me and go forward, you <laughs> but, know. But, but it was also in a certain way beautifully underwritten. You yeah. know, sometimes you look at a, a piece of literature and it's so perfectly formed and 
but very dense. And this was something that had a lot of quiet moments and a lot of uh, room for, for music to exist. So, and, and also it seemed to be either incredibly tender and fragile or there was a, a adrenaline and brutal quality about it. And I was fascinated by that. You know. so, so could you tell us when the song that you're going to present tonight, when, when you wrote that song in the process? Yeah, that, that's actually one, that's one in the former category. This is a thoughtful uh, uh, song. It's actually one of the first four songs that, that we wrote. Uh, we you know, usually try to see what the tone is, what the characters sound like when they're singing, and uh, this is one of the first uh, four. And uh, it, it's a thoughtful song, it's a quiet song. Uh, it's sung uh, by the character of Rocky. And uh, ultimately, uh, we couldn't find a place for it in the show, but it sort of gave us the tone. And uh, we wrote another song at the same time called Fight from the Heart, which wound up staying in the show. This one, this one Actually, didn't. Actually, we wrote this song for the same moment that Fight from the Heart now, where it sits. That's true. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because this gave us an insight, this writing this song, which didn't make it into the show, gave us an insight into the uh, internal nature of Rocky's character. Yeah. Um, d we didn't talk about Germany. I, I, it's probably not necessary. But yeah, why don't we actually jump right to yeah. the song oh, and then maybe we can so. talk about yeah. Germany. Right. Right. And I should say one thing because like, people think like music, musicals like just sort of happen overnight. I looked, I dusted off this piece of sheet music and I looked at the date on it and it's 2006, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So, so it's, a very, it's a very early song and uh, um, it, it was just great just getting to... to, to reacquaint myself with it. Okay, great. I'd, okay. I'd love to hear it. And I'm so glad that it's a song for Rocky and not for Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to sing. <laughs> Oops. So this is a song uh, cut from Rocky originally sung by Rocky, it's called Sometimes a Loser Can Win. Heart that ain't broke. 
Sometimes a loser can win Me, I've been going through the motions With the rest of the dopes Doing what I got to Went to hell with my hopes Living off my knuckles With my life on the ropes You're lost And then you're found And it's one more round been fighting for a lifetime, paying my dues, going nowhere but where I've been. Now there's someone waiting, gonna tell her the news, and I hear her saying, sometimes a loser can win. Sometimes a loser can win. I loved the lyric and it went, it streamed out somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where these things stream. That was fantastic. So, so could you tell us a little bit about, you, uh, Lynn, you just mentioned uh, Germany. Could you talk yeah. a little bit more about the development of the show? So this was 2006. Yes. Um, and so uh, this was before it actually ever, you'd ever got to Germany then. Yeah, you know, way before we even got the job. <laughs> or met, met Stallone. Or met Stallone. Uh, we, we, we met Stallone, um, I think it was in 2011. And um, oh. when was it? Way earlier. No way. Yeah. Oh, we, yeah, we met in 2006. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm the we fact checker of yeah, that's true. We met him early on, but we the show didn't sort of lift off at all until about 2011 because we were working on it with Tom Meehan here in New York. We would check in with Sylvester Stallone every now and then. Um, we presented songs for him in Philadelphia while he was shooting Rocky Balboa at one point, and he loved the songs and sort of gave us permission to do this show, but there were no producers. And we kept trying to find producers, and all the producers were very afraid of this show in New York City. And so we put it aside. That's why there was such a long time lapse in between, and we started writing other shows. Well, that um, was sort of during the Book of Mormon period, and I think everybody, every producer in New York thought we were going to do this as a satirical show. Right. Like sort of how Forbidden Broadway would do it, you know. And, and they were literally were like waiting for the, you know, the, 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 the punchline, the ba-dunch, you know, to hit. And uh, we you know, took it more seriously. We wanted, to, yeah, we wanted yeah. to to do it, we you know, it. straight up and, and, and seriously. And and I know that that Stallone wanted that as well. And you know, we wanted to honor his character and his story. So well, as we were looking for producers here in New York, meanwhile in Hamburg, Germany, um, some German producers who work for a company called Stage Entertainment, which is an international theater company. They have uh, offices in Germany, in Russia, in Spain, here in New York, all over the Amsterdam. Uh, the German faction uh, decided that this would be a fantastic show, uh, an international property that they could perhaps play in all of their theaters if it worked out well, and they contacted Stallone separately and did a big presentation for him with two seven-foot boxers named the Klitschko brothers. 
um, to convince him that this would be a good idea. And he sort of went, but I have writers on this project. <laughs> and we were, we, at that point, we had about a first act written and a good sense of the second act. And so the Germans flew over. We met with the Germans. We enjoyed them very much. And they apparently liked our work. And off we went, hand in hand, to Hamburg, Germany, to premiere an American show, an American story in German, Auf Deutsch. <laughs> And uh, so that was the next phase of our interesting journey, um, and to work with translators, to work with a German-speaking company. They, they, most of them spoke English, so you know it was that made our lives easier. But um, yeah, to to actually work with a translator for a year to to make the songs uh, as close as possible to what I had written lyrically and what Tom had written in terms of the text uh, to squeeze all of those many German syllables into our very few English ones to, um, you know, when you, when you write a song, you do a long, like uh, at the ends of words, if it's a long note, you try to end with a vowel sound, you know, I love you, and in German it would be, you know, and stuff like that. So it was a You would get drenched experience. by the cutoffs. <laughs> and there's no slang in German. No. For any of you who know the German language, there's no slang. And so Rocky talks or could have talked like a college professor had the translator had his way, and that was a whole other um, pull and pull and push and pull. So there was a song cut at the uh, the top of Act or the end of Act One, I think, uh, that still remains in the German version. Is that right? The, uh, there were previews. there were three songs that that started previews in Germany that were cut for on the way to Broadway. But the the song at the end of Act One was edited. Okay. but it wasn't cut out of the show. We made it, um, we, we shortened it, we cut into the action of the song. It's interesting, talking about cut songs, to hear this song again, um, and for anybody who's interested in hearing Andy Carl sing it magnificently, I believe that it's... Even better than me. Even better it than me. better. It's, it's hard, hard to, to imagine. It's true, it's actually better. <laughs> but um, you can get it on Amazon as a bonus track if you buy the album on Amazon, Great. so I'm told. Um, but um, the reason it was cut, it seems to me, hearing it now, is because the placement of it was after he had been given the big fight. You know, you've got the big fight, Rocky, uh, and, and in our original minds, he would go, oh, okay, and, you know, and, he'd, and he'd go out, and it would be this quiet moment of good reflection. things happen to people, you know. And the truth of the matter is that if we had put that song on stage, you would not have sat still for it because you knew that he got the fight, and you wouldn't want to... You, you wouldn't have wanted to hear a reflective song. You would have wanted to get on with what's going to happen next. And that's one of those songs where, you know, as you learn your craft in the theater, you, you find those moments. And, we, we actually and, tried to move it at one point to Act Two. You remember that? It was an Act Two, and we actually tried to make it uh, a, a duet for Rocky and Adrian to make it a little more active, and it still, it still didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. But the, it's, it's so funny, you know, because you know, we do know that clearly that he accepts the fight, but Stallone uh, came right before previews, and he, he asked us to put in a line in that scene where he said, so Rocky, do you want to you know, do, do the fight? And he thinks about it, and he says, no. And, he said, and we thought that was such an odd choice. But he says, no, just try it. And we put it uh, in the scene, and then the audience gasped. And it would, they, they couldn't believe it. And it would happen, it happened night after night. But you showed that the audience was so with the character 
And the song that replaced that song at that moment when he is offered the fight is a song of decision. Yeah. And so you don't know if he's going to accept that fight. He's already said no, and the guy goes, well, I'll let you think about it. And he leaves the room, and Rocky thinks about it in the song that is at that point in, in the show. It's called Fight from the Heart, and he goes through all of the reasons why he shouldn't. They're going to make me a clown. I know I can't win. I, I'm, you know... On the other hand, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a song of, of decision, and it's very active. And by the end, he has decided to take the fight. And that's when we go to the song. We cut into the press conference. The song used to start with the people of Philadelphia. Now it starts with a press conference, and it jump cuts. It's, it's a very exciting moment. So, so just to be clear, at the moment, then, there's kind of two versions, not only in language, but two actual scores that are uh, being played in two different cities, right? Yeah, in so two yeah, different yeah. languages, right, right. in two different countries. Well, it, it, it's interesting <laughs> because in Germany, the character of Polly had a song, and we cut it in the middle of previews. It's actually, if you're interested, go and look up Rocky Das Musical, and you can hear the German language yeah. version of a song that he would sing in the meat freezer. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, it was a song I actually rather liked it. I didn't understand a word of the German, you know. But but it was sort of like a grungy kind of punk, yeah. Rocky kind of '70s kind of thing, which which seemed fitting for that character. But I think ultimately he didn't really want to sing, and the audience didn't really need to have him, you know, make this statement. But. So I, I wonder, are there any questions from the audience? We've got about five minutes or so for questions. Oh, Everything? come on. You can do better than that. <laughs> I've got lots more, but I'm sure there's somebody that has a question. Yeah, in the back. Are there any ideas from songs that you cut from some of your previous shows that help inform you write new songs for Rocky? No. No. Not it's, really. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, an, it's an interesting thing because each show really has its own personality, its own musical vocabulary, its own uh, uh, lyrical vocabulary. And uh, we purposely try to not repeat ourselves, so we try to, with each show, do something really unique and really different. So, uh, for example, like a, a song that might have been cut from Ragtime would never work in Rocky and vice versa. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really recycle. I recycle... <laughs> You know, pages of you know the pa the paper that it's printed paper, on, but not the song <laughs> themselves. So. Yeah. 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 Every, yeah. Um, I'm struggling on how to ask this question, but um, the tone of most of the songs are, are um, I don't know how to say. Just saying. <laughs> Because these are not showstopper characters. Okay, no, because I felt yeah. that you, you didn't want to make it too Broadway. No, well, you, you, right. you, you don't. Like talking, and yeah. then it, it would blend into the, the singing, and so, because I saw a lot of different people in the audience, you know, you show Broadway goers. Right. So I figured maybe they all appreciate this better because it was more like. You know, I think if Rocky had sung showstoppers or if Adrian had, where. I think that, I mean, she actually does have a showstopper in Act 2, but we didn't think, it, we didn't know that it would but, be. But it totally comes out uh, of character. It's not like, yeah. now here, I'm going to walk to the edge of the, the stage, stage and belt see out my guts it. out. No, no, because I thought they, what do you call it, they, they, they play that music, you know, the movie, the songs from the movie. Um, uh, yeah, they yeah, yeah. play that yeah. a lot, and they make it, like, really pretty, and I thought maybe it's on purpose that they did this. Well, everything that's on that stage is on purpose. Yeah, none of that is very true. Honestly, it's, I mean, it's interesting because we did, we felt we absolutely had to use the Bill Conti theme, you know, the, the Gonna Fly Now, because the minute you say Rocky, people like spontaneously start singing that. So I would have been insane to like, like 
hands over my ears and to pretend it doesn't exist. You know, so I somehow had to embrace that. And then we had talked about possibly, we were talking about montage, you know, because something that's really popular just in the whole canon of those movies are these ideas of montages. Yeah, so it was, thank you. I I have to say I worked harder on Eye of the Tiger, a song that I didn't write, (laughs) than any other song in the entire show of Rocky. I did. My friends would say, what are you working on today? I said, I'm working on Eye of the Tiger. They said, really? I will just add, and then we'll go to another point, but very quickly, the, the idea of the score for the show was to write something that would be interesting and as naturalistic as possible. Not as theatrical necessarily, but as naturalistic to stay with those very withheld, very uneducated, very small, very humble uh, characters. And that's the answer to that. Yeah, And and to to build their love story in a very, very emotional, simple way. And then when you get to that huge climax, you're so invested in the characters that you try to make the people stand up and scream, and they do. And so I feel like we've been quite successful in doing that, yeah. I think we have time for one more. Okay. Is there anything over there? Yeah. Um, you both seem very, very used to being able to excise, you know, material that you've written. And, and does it ever get really difficult? I mean, I, I know you have to do it, but it must be hard, and there must be arguments about Always. About well, it's you know you know it's you know it's an interesting thing. Like Lynn and I sort of approach this from different places, and um, if there's something that in, in my gut that I feel the essence of, of of that is correct or feels absolutely right for the moment, I I sort of hang on to that a bit. And even if the song's not working, you know, my tendency is to say, well, the song's not working, but the the raw material feels right to me, and I don't. And, and if, if I feel I can top it or come at it from a different angle, I will. But if I feel like, no, this feels right, then, then I start analyzing, and we both start analyzing about, is it, the, is it the chorus that's not right? Is it the way we get into it? Is it the placement? You know, there, there are many different things that... Uh, there are actually songs that we haven't... The, the, I tend to see the big picture, because I'm a book writer as well, and I've written book for many of our shows, and I tend to kind of see from beginning to end and see ahead of time that something is not going to be right structurally or whatever, where Stephen is looking at each individual piece more than I am. You're much more willing to like just, like for example, once in this island, the opening number is We Dance, and the entire 90-minute score is based on that song. And Lynn said, I don't think that song's working. Let's let's pull that out. And like if you pull that out, it's sort of like then the score doesn't work. You know what I mean? Because it's like theme and variations. All you would have is and variations. So so I fought to keep that one in. And and in fact, it was the chorus. The chorus was the wrong chorus. And once we did that, then the entire front part of the show snapped into place, which was great. Well, let's thank Glenn and Steve. Thank The, uh, the young actress at the beginning of Merrily We Roll Along who says, I've read your book five times, but I, I, I saw uh, Bridges of Madison County five times and, and loved it each time. I, I think I didn't quite get it the first time and kept learning more and more about it every time I saw it. 
I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the development of the show and how it, how it came to be. Um, it was, uh, Marsha, Norman and I had, uh, we had done a piece together called The Trumpet of the Swan, which was an orchestra piece with narrators. And we, uh, we had had such a great time doing it that we kept saying, we have to write a real show together. We, you know, we did, and so we were trying to figure out what it should be. And I said, I want to do La Traviata. I want to do like a big piece, just something with a lot of singing, people just singing for hours on end. <laughs> people absolutely run ragged by singing. And she said, well, I don't know what that would be. I said, well, let's just, and then she got a call uh, apparently, James Lapine had turned this call down, so she got a call from uh, Robert James Waller's representatives, uh, who said we're, they're trying to monetize the prop. This did not work out well for them. They're trying to, uh, <laughs> uh, they were trying to uh, monetize, uh, you know, the bridge of Madison County and extend the brand and do all of that stuff. And Marcia said to me, "I think this is our, this is our, this is our musical. This is your La Traviata." And I said, "You know, it's not a good book." And she said, I, it, "It doesn't. I, I think it's in here." <laughs> and uh, and Marsha was the one who then said to me, "No, there, there's something really, there's something very strong in here." She said, "You're right, it's not, but there's something really going on in this in this story." And she came out to L.A., which is where I was living, and we uh, we worked through. And I found myself getting very excited about the idea of doing a chamber piece uh, that that just was based around what these two people felt in this moment and what those two people were going through didn't need to be written by Robert James Waller. It, it, I understood it. I, I got what, what these two people were going through. And so we, uh, we started working on the show then. That was, I guess, about four years ago. Um, and then I have to briefly tell you that Marsha engineered some out unbelievable boondoggle where she got a free... I swear this is true, and this happens to Marsha, which is why you should be friends with her. <laughs> she, like, got a free... There's a hotel on St. Bart's, which is the most expensive island in the known universe. So she got a, 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 a room at this hotel. It wasn't a room. There was actually a separate house, which is called the Villa Rockstar. Um, and the Villa Rockstar has four bedrooms in it and a recording studio in the basement. And for some reason, Marsha got this for free. And we all... So she said, Jason... <laughs> would you come to St. Bart's? There's a recording studio in the basement where we can work on the show. And I was like, duh. <laughs> no, I couldn't possibly. You should have seen me go into my wife and say, I, I think I, Marsha might want me to go to St. Bart's. My wife ended up coming. Uh, so, <laughs> so that was that. So we did that. And we actually wrote a, a big chunk of the first act during the, the two, two and a half weeks that we were there. And then we, uh, we did several readings. We did uh, three three readings where we sort of got a piece of it and got one step further along each way. And then once we had the show finished after the, the, the third reading, we did one more, uh, which was last January, just to sort of, we were waiting for Kelly to be available because she was doing nice work if you can get it. And we were like, so we were trying to figure out what to, what to do to keep the show sort of staying alive. So we did one extra reading uh, in that June, and that was when we booked uh, Williamstown to do a developmental production there last summer. Uh, and that was also right at the time that Kelly uh, announced that she was pregnant. And that was like, well, great timing, girly. Uh, <laughs> but in a lot of ways, it really was wonderful timing because uh, it allowed us to meet uh, Elena Shadow, who did the role in Williamstown and then stood by for Kelly and who taught us a great deal about the character and uh, who is actually going to be with us now. So, so because I've seen the show five times, um, I'm actually, what do you call them? Not Jackies, but... Uh, Bridges, bridgeheads, maybe. Um, so uh, I, I know that the song <laughs> was never in Williamstown. Uh, so when was the song cut? This, uh, no, this song, okay, so this song, 
the, you know, like I said, we did one reading where we just had the first act, and then we had a little bit of the second act, and then we sort of finished everything in the third reading. So th the problem was we never really knew how the show could end. Marsha had always, Marsha had written a full uh, uh, libretto for the, the show, but it ended the way the book ends, which is to say that the kids discover the box of, uh, of stuff that uh, Francesca has hidden away for them after her death. So it ended with everyone dead. And, um, <laughs> and then the kids come out and they read, and there was like a four-minute scene of the kids reading all of this stuff that was in it. And I like, I tried to goose it up with as much underscore as I could, but it was a long night in the theater. And we were like, wow. So we never knew exactly how to get to the end, because Marcia said the biggest problem of this show is dead but happy, because that's what you want to do, and how do you get an audience to dead but happy? So this was along the way to dead but happy. This was, uh, uh, this song came in uh, at the, uh, uh, I, if you saw the show in New York, and if you didn't, aha, too late. Uh, uh, <laughs> but if you, uh, if you saw the show in New York, this song, uh, you may have asked yourself as you walked out of the theater, gee, how come she never called him after, uh, after he left? And, you know, Bud dies, why didn't she call? And so now I can set your mind at ease that we did ask ourselves that question, and we did write a version of the show where we tried to answer it. This song was essentially the answer to that question. This song was meant to take the course of after Bud's death. Uh, she comes back to the house. She's alone in the, in the house with a telephone, and she sings this song. And over the course of this song, six years, ten years, fifteen years pass, and we see sort of her process of getting older as she uh, imagines, you know, what, and, and, and tries to figure out what she's supposed to do. So I don't want to give too much of the song away. But so that was, that was this song, which was called uh, You've Moved On, as you'll, uh, as you'll hear. So I'd love to hear it. Yes, we'll hear it. There we go. Uh, this is Elena Shadow, ladies and gentlemen.
seven minutes of fun and frolic for the whole family. So let's, uh, let's move right to the audience questions. Yeah. There were very, actually very few songs that were cut compared, I mean, like Parade, I think we cut more songs than actually ended up in the show, and that's not unusual. Honeymoon in Vegas, there, there were probably more songs cut than ended up in the show, and weirdly, they all end up being, I mean, not all, but they, a lot of them end up being for the same moment, that you end up writing the same moment over and over and over again, trying to get it right, and then you finally do, and then it turns out you cut that whole moment anyway. Um, <laughs> This, so this show actually had very few songs that were cut from it. There was a, 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 an initial duet when he came up the driveway at the beginning of the show. There was a duet uh, that the two of them had, uh, which I'm glad uh, left uh, very quickly. But that was me just trying to find out what the sound of the show was. And it wasn't that. Uh, and then um, uh, in the first act, there's actually a very little that changed. We, we sort of grew the, the first act very organically. The song at the top of the second act, what is now State Road 21, was slightly different in Williamstown. It was a different song. I, I don't know why we changed it. The producers asked me to change it, and they said, can we get something? I think they thought I would, like, write a hit on the radio or something like that. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't love the old one, so I didn't, I didn't care. I just, State Road 21 is fine. I, it was all sort of fine, so I, that's, that's different. Um, there's, there's what we call lateral changes. It's like, we changed it. It's, it's not any better, but we did change it. Um, uh, so there was uh, there's that. Then um, Hunter uh, had a had a song uh, before when I'm gone. Uh, Hunter had a song uh, called "God Smiles Down on the Family," which we did in Williamstown, and which was a, a beautiful song, which I really loved. But it did slow down the second act. At that point, the last thing you wanted to hear was Bud talking about sort of what he cared about. Everyone was like, where are the lovers? Bring back the lovers. Uh, that, and that's why he forgave me, which was a song that Whitney, uh, Whitney plays uh, in Marion in the first act, and she plays Kiara, the sister, in the second act. And she had a song, and it was a really cool song, and it was a really fun moment. I kept waiting for it to get cut. I was sure from the minute I wrote it, I was like, see, I don't know that we have the kind of show where you can get away with taking these four minutes and doing this. And we did it in Williamstown, and the first two weeks in Williamstown, it was a mess. And everyone was like, cut it, cut it, cut it. And then Bart put Whitney in a different costume and changed the staging. And all of a sudden, the song was like, now it's awesome. And so we came to New York with the song because now we had learned it was awesome. And then we started performances in New York. And it was like, actually, it was much more awesome, uh, you know, than the version we had before. But it's still not awesome enough. We're still just spinning. So, uh, so we got rid of that. And then, um, and then there was this. And honestly, maybe there was like one or two others, but, but there wasn't a lot, especially because the, all the songs in Bridges, are, are, they tend to be very big, organic pieces. And so it, it, it was it, the fabric of the show, like the last five years, is like I cut two songs in the, in the course of the whole thing. So, it, you know, they're, they're so organic to the fabric of the scenery that it's not like you just pull the song out. If the scene doesn't work, then the song goes. But once I got the idea for the scene, the song's going to stay there. I'll mess around with it a lot, but that was about it. Oh, uh, Grandpa doesn't pontificate about musical theater anymore. 
I don't care. People are going to see what they're going to see. I'm just going to write stuff that I love. I, I can't get it. I didn't, I didn't know that was an applause line, but thank you. <laughs> what else? Another question? Oh, yeah, there's one back. way back. Yeah. Well, I mean, we wrote Francesca for Kelly, and so I was definitely, I had that voice in my head. Um, but no, it's, I just happen to like voices that have a certain amount of texture to them and, and, you know, that can make a certain amount of music. I feel like there's a thing called a Broadway voice that doesn't turn me on a whole lot. It's, it's really loud. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it's not really always great at making music, and I just prefer people who can make music, and I think you can make music with, you know, a four-note range. It, it's not about that so much to me, but I just like voices that have texture and that know how to make music. So I, you know, I never write, I used to write all the audition calls, you know, back when I was in my 20s, and I still cared about things like that. Now, I mean, they pay casting directors a great deal of money to, to come up with things like that. So I didn't see it. I didn't know we were asking for unique voices, but, <laughs> but we got some, so that was good. <laughs> yeah, right there. Why do you ask? I don't know. Everyone asks that question. I'm always like, who, who cares? I mean, I, <laughs> I'm happy to tell you. It's, it's, uh, I, uh, uh, for me, uh, I, I always, uh, I start with, you know, there's a character and there's a story, and I really wouldn't know how to start writing unless I knew what I was writing about. You know, so it's not like I just have some musical idea and I start writing that. <coughs> um, so once I have the character and the story and I know what's supposed to be happening, I have a certain intuitive sense of the musical pace of it. You know, there's a certain rhythm it's going to fall into for me. And that might be that I was walking down the street this morning and I heard some song on the radio and I was like, ooh, one day I'd like to make a song out of that. And then, oh, look, just today this song happens to be the... So, you know, it could be anything that inspires that, but who knows? I'll just sort of find some musical way in. And then I try and find a title. Um, and I'll probably have the title somewhere in the back of my head while I'm working on music, and I'll come up with a melody, and I'll put some words around it, and maybe I'll sing the title a bunch of times, and eventually it all sort of... I, there's a point at which I have to get away from the piano and actually write the lyrics, because, I, you know, I could sit at the piano all day long and never get anything done, so, you know, I'll just sit there and play, and isn't this great? So, uh, <laughs> writing lyrics, I will eventually have to go and get a pen and write the lyrics down, um, and that takes forever. Uh, so, so I, I just, I, you know, I chip away at it I, uh, with the music and the lyrics, but, uh, <laughs> both at the, at, the, at the same time, sort of, I, I guess, is, is how that works. I don't know. I don't have a question. I just want to say we're fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone who saw it is not fit. So, so maybe there. one more question.
Well, I, you know, this show was written for eight people, and so the version that we have on stage can still be played by eight people. It doesn't, it, it, we did not rewrite the show at all to add the other people into the show. It's, it's merely that, it, you know, we just needed more people to honestly to help get the scenery moving. And the, the, honestly, the fact is that we would have had all those people anyway, because by the time you get all your understudies and your swings cast, we were paying for all these people anyway, so we just put them in the show. And, you know, at some of the choral moments, it was wonderful, but it's, it's still a very small piece of theater. I mean, you know, compared, you look at Aladdin, that's not a chamber piece. You know, we, <laughs> you know, what, what do we have, 14 people? It's, it's still a pretty small thing. But, you know, I, I'm interested in seeing the eight-person version. It would be it would be a real challenge for a company to do. You know, it, 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 it's, nobody's ever off, you know. It, it, you'd think it's a show about just two people, but the, the fabric of those other six characters counts for everything in the show or else the two people would be the most boring people on earth. Uh, you have to know what they're pulling against. Uh, and so that's why that, that community is, uh, is so important to them. So, I, you know, I, I would like to see the eight-person version one of these days, we'll find out. All right, well, let's thank Jason Robert Brown. Thank you all. I just want to remind everyone that on the stage today, we've had the minds that created Ragtime, Prayed, and Next to Normal, uh, including their current shows, um, talking with us. So I'm still kind of a, a fanboy. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, with the, the, other, uh, the other writers that we've talked to, it, we've walked a little bit through the way that the shows came to be. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about, and the audience a little bit about If Then, and uh, sort of the road through to DC and to Broadway. Sure, sure. Um, if Then uh, is an idea that I brought to Brian Yorkie, my collaborator. Brian um, was the one who came up with the idea for Next to Normal, so I thought it was just fair that I get a chance. Um, and um, uh, how many people have seen If Then? Oh, wow, fantastic. So um, uh, for those of you who have read about it, for those of you who have seen it, um, I know the storyline. It, it, it deals with, uh, I think, very Im important issues in, in, in a woman's life. Um, but it also deals with, with themes that, that I think about a lot, which are um, what do the choices and decisions that we make every day really mean? Um, every single one, not just the big ones, but the little ones, and how do they not only affect us, but the people around us? Um, and I know looking uh, at, at where I am now, writing, writing musicals with Brian, um, starring Adina Menzel, directed by David Stone, I mean, directed by Michael Greif and produced by David Stone, um, looking at, uh, at, at my family, my, my wife, who will be celebrating 14 years um, this coming um, October, and I have three children. And what got me to those places, um, we can all do this. It's a really sort of random um, set of circumstances and decisions. And um, I didn't have that dream when I was a kid of writing musicals. It just it happened really at college, meeting Rita and Brian. So I, I look at where I am and wonder if I would be here and, and doing these things if, if little things hadn't happened. And so, um, so 
those thoughts ruminate, and 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 I um, I said to Brian, what about this? What about a story where we we look at someone's life and and two different roads? And, and certainly we've seen that in 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 books, and we've seen that in film. But I I haven't seen that kind of story in a musical live. And I thought with one actor playing this character and going back and forth with some theatrical magic, um, we could have a, um, a really a real thrilling night in the theater, but also an emotional one because we do think about those decisions. And I think um, we have very um, heartfelt conversations and, and thought processes about it. Great. Could you tell us a little bit about the song that you, you're going to play today? Sure. Um, well, when you're, when, when you're doing a story like this, there are many roads that you can go down besides the two that we're telling, at the, or that she went down in the, in the musical currently. Um, and um, we were trying to figure out how to line up a group, uh, line up some decisions, one after the other, that brought her to a place. And one thing we knew was that she was going to, the character Elizabeth was going to come to New York and meet a significant man. Um, and so we gave this man a brother, um, and his name was Ben. And um, so Ben pretty much um, makes uh, Adina's character Elizabeth fall in love with him only to, uh, only for her to find out that um, he's actually married and is just sort of out getting his kicks and, and this is something that he does. And so when she gets drunk one night and, and through another friend decides to go and knock on his door and berate him, um, that's where she meets Josh. So that was the original um, path to Josh. And uh, the song I'm playing is called Cold, Cold City that Ben sings to her. Um, and it is, it is a heartfelt song. It is um, a song that wants to evoke what the city can be, how it can be lonely, um, but how when we find those those things, those people that make us feel a little less alone, how significant it is. Fantastic. I'd love to hear it. Passing faces 
take a look It might be me It's a lost late city when the last train is gone And you walk two miles in the steel gray dawn Cause the taxis are all taken and the gypsies blow right past It's a cold, cold city Is there, uh, are there any questions? Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, uh, when I first started to think about the music for the show, um, I find the music of, of, of Paul Simon and, and particularly the, the music that, that he wrote for Simon and Garfunkel to be um, very evocative, but also um, it evokes a, a city um, for me. The, the songs about New York especially um, and a song that I listened to a lot when I was thinking about the show was The Only Living Boy in New York. Um, but there are many. And I, 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 the, the character actually um, uh, came out of a... She first met him. There was folk music happening in the park. Um, so that kind of style was very much in my head. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. That, that, that was the kind of music that was running through me. And I think that's definitely influenced by, by Paul Simon. <laughs> oh wow! You know, there's um, it, when you're when you're writing a new musical, um, there are there are there are a number of songs that you're writing, and and they're the songs that stay in the show. There are songs that you hope are good ones that don't quite fit in the show, and then there are just bad songs, and 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 um, I hope that's one of the good ones. Um, but um, the character didn't didn't belong. It just it, it was taking too long for us to get to where we needed to, um, and so once the character left, um, the song left, and we tried to put it in a different place for a different character, um, but um, it's 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 interesting that the show really it's a it's a it's a whole piece, and and there can be great songs that you write along the way, but they don't always fit the puzzle the way that you think they're going to. So you always have the song though, which is great. Yeah, over there. Tomorrow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was curious um, what you felt like was the biggest song that that cut between those two um, productions today. Oh, the biggest song that got cut. Um, we cut twenty-seven. There are uh, there are.
are 22 or 23 musical cues in the show, and, 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 uh, and 27 went bye-bye. Um, I don't think there's necessarily one significant cut that we made um, that, that stands out. Um, uh, but um, there were some, some major changes. We made a lot of changes between Washington, D.C. and New York. Um, and there was a song called No More Wasted Time um, that is still on the show, but it came in the second act. We moved that song to the first act, and we had a song called The Story of Jane, um, which was a song that when we wrote it in the workshop, we were like, that's a home run, that feels great, it's celebratory, um, it does what we wanted to do, and then it just wasn't, it just wasn't playing the way we wanted it. Um, we had um, uh, an opening called If I Told You, that was, um, uh, right now the, the opening number is called um, um, What If, um, and then there's also this first section, the sort of folk section, um, kind of in the style of what I played. Um, and that was originally called If I Told You, and that was in every single reading, and it was in D.C., and then we lost it for New York. Um, remember the second, first, the beginning scene, the second story. Yeah, yeah. So they, they all add up, and, and, they're, and they all feel significant. And you have so many smart people that you're working with, and, and, and you just try to – everyone just wants to see the show, what's best for the show. You can tell – in, in, the uh, in the audience when people are not on board, when they're confused, when they're, when they're starting to rustle their candies and look at their program and, and then get annoyed there's no song list and so then they, so, so um, it's a lot to take in in an audience at it then. Um, but um, but that's, those are lessons you try to learn and then just, just, just take all that information because people will tell you different things but audiences as a whole won't lie. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Is there anything else? Yeah. Brian Yorkie. Well, you come up with the initial because there's there's a couple things happening. We have we have a, 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 a character driven story we want to tell, and then we have a device where we're going back and forth between two different uh, storylines. Um, so we had to get beyond just a device. What is why is this happening to this character? Um, and that took a lot of work to figure out not only who she was and um, and what she wanted, what she came to New York for, but also. Um, the effects on everyone around her, and and Brian had a lot of um, a lot of things to figure out and to keep clean, so that you couldn't suddenly say, "Oh, wait a minute, that person wasn't in that moment in that story." There's, um, I think it's fun to come to a show like that where you're where you're uh, you know you're, you're you're being challenged in that way, and, and and you're not always sure necessarily where you are, but you just hopefully if you lose yourself, it's only for a little while. I love I love films like that where I remember the first time I saw The Usual Suspects. I don't know if anyone's seen that movie or Memento, and I just. I really love those kinds of puzzles. And putting the puzzle together was, um, was challenging. And I've done adaptations too. The truth is, is that any new musical is difficult 
whether it's an adaptation or an original story. But there is the added thing with, a, with an original musical that you don't have that template to go back to. You have to, you have to find the answers yourselves and you can go down a long way down a, a path and then suddenly have to come back and that's hard. Um, but I also just love sitting in an audience and watching them and, and realizing that they don't know what's happening next and, and there's no predicting the way the story's going to go and I think that's a really thrilling experience. Yeah, over there. I wondered, uh, given the uh, the cast, there's been uh, the inevitable comparisons to Rent. I, I wonder if there was any way in which you tried to take advantage of that and, and build on the. I mean, I, I wonder about particularly the No Man Manhattan song. Uh -huh. This seems sort of very like um, On Your Own uh, or What You Own from Rent. Uh, was that a, sort of an intentional attempt to to pull from that musical, or are those just coincidental? Um, I, th I think it's coincidental. I think certainly the energy of Anthony and Adina and Michael being in the room together um, was really exciting. Um, and there was a moment where um, there's a scene in Act Two where Anthony and Adina are on a park bench and they have a, a scene together. And we joke that it was the Mark Maureen um, scene that you uh, you know that got cut from, uh, <laughs> from Rent. Um, but Rent continues to be, certainly for me, and I, I know for a lot of, of, of writers of my generation, um, it continues to have influence in so many ways. I think what, what, what I try to do with everything that I write, but certainly something like If Then that wanted to be about New York City, um, is to channel Jonathan. Um, Jonathan showed the way with Rent to be true to your heart and, and your artistry and to write characters and, and, and stories that matter to you. Um, and I look at If Then every night and I, I see the way, um, I see the way it affects people. I, my, my, my son, who's nine years old, was listening to one of the songs that I'm most proud of um, called Hey Kid, which is about a father's feelings at, uh, at having a, a child. And, and I, not, I will never forget when my wife told me that she was pregnant with her first child, even though I really wanted to have a kid, I just stared at the ceiling for about an hour <laughs> just thinking about what that meant. And there are all these thoughts and, and you don't quite know. And then the baby's there and everything is fine. And then it's not fine, and then it's fine. You know, it's just, it's, but it's very beautiful and romantic to me. And, and, and my son said to me, Dad, are you happy that you have a kid? <laughs> and and he, when we're in the car, and it's funny because kids now, it's like track three, track seven, track 12. They don't know the names of the songs, they just know the track. But he always asked to hear, hey kid, it's a song that mattered to me, it now matters to my son. Um, these are the stories that, that, that I want to tell, that Jonathan told so beautifully with Rent. And so if there's any connection to Rent, I take that very seriously, and I hope that I'm doing the kind of work that Jonathan did so beautifully. So we have time for one closing question. Yeah.
Um, there really isn't. I think that, um, well, first of all, Brian and I um, are who we are because of the very strong women in our lives. Um, uh, and we talk about that, certainly next to normal, a family story. Um, one of the things that I found so compelling about If Then is um, my wife's story, who, has, who is a mother of three, um, is, a, is a brilliant actress. Um, we met actually at Columbia, and she was getting her MFA. Um, and having three kids has not allowed her to return to acting since. Um, and there's a compelling story to, t to tell, looking at my wife and about um, the balance of family and career for women. And, and, um, and so those are the stories I'm trying to, to look for, whether they're male or female. I want to tell true stories, stories that matter, stories that I see every day um, and that I think an audience will, will I hope, respond to. Um, so we've, we've, we've had two very strong um, central characters, these women characters, um, but Magic Mike is around the horizon for us. <laughs> um, so, but so is Freaky Friday to, uh, to women as well. So um, I just, I feel very fortunate to tell the stories I'm telling and, and, and I think it's just a coincidence. Fantastic. Let's thank our guests. Thank you very much, thank you. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org.